This is Pastor John welcoming you to our broadcast. Have you ever had your home invaded by some kind of pest? They can be very hard to get rid of. So we do whatever we can to keep them out of our houses, don't we? Well, Second John warns us to be careful what we allow regarding teaching to enter our home and our churches. Bad or errant teaching can be even harder to evict once it gets in. Let's join our service for Watch Yourselves. You know, one of the most horrible things about being up here is knowing that your mic might be on while you're singing. And the second hymn, I went, oh my gosh, was that me? But what a privilege it is to stand before you now. We have, we have adjusted our, our order of worship just slightly now. And we're going to go into something we're calling responsive reading. And if you have your order of worship with you, on the back is the responsive reading. And it will be on the screen also. And what we're going to read today, Pastor John and the elders have gotten together. We want these to be the foundations of our trust in Jesus. These are historic ideas and words that have been put together by men and women way before us as they have thought through the difficult and very mysterious matters of who our God is and how we relate to him and how we worship. But before we read this very historic creed, which is called the Nicene Creed, I want to go over a couple of words with you, okay? And you'll see the word as we work our way through the Nicene Creed, there's this really hard word, consubstantial. Do you see that? Consubstantial. Okay, that's con from the Latin, which means with and substance. So God the Father and God the Son, this is an oversimplification, I understand, but they are of the same essence, uh, my son and daughter-in-law and grandchildren, I'm happy to say, are worshiping with us today. But if I were to introduce my son Eric to you this way, I'd say, well, this is my son Eric. He's not human. You'd go, what? Right? God the Father and God the Son are of the same essence. Okay, that's consubstantial. And then there's this word you for, look further down, maybe it's proceeds, that the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, proceeds from the Father and the Son. That does not mean that God the Father and God the Son got together and made the Spirit. Okay? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal persons. This is just the order of the salvation process. Each of them, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have specific roles to play in that salvation process. It, what a genius our God is to have invented the way for us to come back to him and pay for all of it rightly and well. Then you're going to see the word man. Sisters, this does not exclude you from the proclamations and the blessings of this creed, okay? It just means human, as in humankind, as in our species. We know and love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then there's the word Catholic with a small c. And that means universal. A large c means the Roman church, but small c means universal. So when you read these words with me this morning... That's where we are when it comes to Nicene Creed. And we're going to read it kind of slowly, okay? So we just let it soak into us and prepare us, as did our hymn for Pastor John's sermon this morning. Are you ready to read the Nicene Creed with me? Okay. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, 
born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets, I believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Okay, that, that took a little time to get through. And I know, I know how this can at times seem like it, I, I hate to use the word, but tedious. But these are the foundations of our faith. And as I was talking with the elders about this, um, why we've moved into this area of responsive reading, I want you to know who we are. I want you to know where we've come from. I want you to know that there's a legacy and a history uh, to this church that we're in right now, both with the EFCA, with the group that's been together since 1979, uh, and with the Protestant church, the Protestant church that began with the Ref Reformation. I know that's a surprise to some people. Uh, but all these things have been thought through. They're part of who we are. And I believe one, one of my heart's desires is for you to have what you need to get through your day. We're going to talk a little bit about that during the sermon, but for you to be equipped for the, the navigating the waters of life, which I think are in a bit of turmoil right now. So it's not empty. Uh, it, it's not meaningless. It's designed to equip you. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will use it to remind you that he's always there and give you the assurance of his presence and his blessing. Amen. Thank you. I'd like you to turn to Second John. Let me read this for you. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I, I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. 
This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have come, have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but we may win a full reward. Everyone who gives on ahead, who goes on ahead, and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. You know, every now and then when I'm prepping for a sermon, I'll look at a passage and uh, do my little outline and go, oh, this isn't going to be a very long sermon. And I want to, you know, I always want to try and stick to the points and so on and so forth. This is not one of those. <laughs> so I, I just bear with me. I've got a lot to tell you this morning, and uh, I, think, I think it's valuable. But first, I want to talk to you about stink bugs. Remember them? <laughs> I, I mean, they were, they were all the things several years ago, right? And, and the idea was that if one of them got into your house, if two of them got into your house, sooner or later, they were just all over the place. And we had friends uh, that had gone away on vacation. They came back from vacation, uh, opened up their luggage, and a couple of stink bugs flew out. And next thing you know, their, their whole house was infested. And, it, you know, they multiplied so fast. They're in the drapes. They're in the closets. They're everywhere. And they had to shut the entire house down and cloak it and have it defumigated. And even then, they still had some problems. So the message here is that you need to be careful what you bring into your home because you, you might have a hard time getting rid of it. Uh, so the, the, watch yourself. Watch what you bring into your home. The, the title of the sermon is Watch Yourself. Now, Second John moves along uh, the same lines, the same themes as First John did. And while the themes are similar, this one seems to get a little bit more personal. First uh, John was an encouragement to the church on how to deal with false teachers. We're still kind of in that area. Uh, but th this one, it, it seems to be like more one-on-one. -on -one. And, and, and it brings the caution about false teachers right into the home. Maybe. Maybe I'll explain what I'm talking about in just a few minutes. For now, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see a, a commendation in verses 1 through 4. We'll see a challenge in verses 5 through 6. And then we'll see a caution in verses 7 through 11. Now, let's take a look at this commendation. It starts out with the words in verse 1, the elder. Now, I want, I want you to notice something here. The author does not identify himself other than to call himself the elder. Now, we all think it's John because it's First John. It may be, but he doesn't say this is John. He uses the word presbyteros. Uh, so he's referring to himself as somebody who has some authority to speak into the lives of his recipients here. Uh, maybe he's an elder in the church. Uh, he's certainly someone who has authority in whatever social circles the reader, readers would be moving in. So 
Some scholars, most of them, believe this to be John. There are others that don't. There are enough similarities in the writing that that's probably a pretty good idea. Uh, but there are some differences as well. And it's interesting. And I, I love these things because when you start looking at them, you go, wow, we don't know who wrote the letter. Yeah. And, and so none of this, none of this negates the inspiration of the scripture. Because these letters, regardless of who wrote them, satisfy all of the requirements of what we call canonization, being included in the Bible, authored by the Holy Spirit. So we have the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also who know the truth. And it's just another interesting phrase, phrase this, this elect lady and her children, and, you know, we can look at that and go, oh, it's written to an individual, but it might be to the church and to the members of the church. And then we got to wonder, well, is it intended for the church? Is it for just this lady? Uh, and, and again, most biblical scholarship would agree that this is a letter to the church. There's another little bit of a quandary. And I love these discussions, but we need to be careful not to get so tied up in details like that that we miss what we're supposed to learn from a passage like this. Remember, all of the Bible is God's self-revelation to his creation. So as such, we can learn something about him in every passage we read. So while it can be interesting talking about who wrote that and who they wrote it to and all of these things, it's far more beneficial to consider what we should be learning about God when we read his word. So our author knows all this and kind of alludes to it in, right there in his greeting, verse 2. Because of the truth, he's writing because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us collective forever. Now, the us here is the writer and his readers. He identifies them as a group. It's kind of a neat little trick here because he establishes the roles, the elder, the lady, the children. Uh, but he's talking now about a group that has a common experience. They have a common foundation, a common blessing. They've heard and they believe the truth. They believe God's word. So he says, grace, verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we are commanded by the Father. So the writer begins, what, what, look what just happened here. He begins with an encouragement, this commendation that comes from the joy that the writer experiences when he hears that the elect lady, whether or not it's a woman or the group, whoever, and some of her family are obeying God and walking in the truth. I want you to notice something here. Notice the tone that is set right at the beginning of the letter. The author is lingering on things that he can use to encourage his readers with. Think about how the tone of the letter would sound if he started out with, I hear, I hear some of you are not walking in the truth because that's kind of what he said, isn't it? I hear some of your families walking in the truth. What if he just decided to say, well, let's start out with this. I hear not everybody in your family is saved. What are you doing about that? 
So what we see, what we see here is the embodiment of what we would call encouragement. And the writer wants the reader to linger on the blessings of being a believer, not on the shortcomings that we all share. He seeks to lift them up. He seeks to commend them rather than scold or judge or correct or criticize. Great way to start a letter, isn't it? Great way to start a dialogue, isn't it? Great way to have a chat. Would this or would it not be a great way to put a posting on social media? Ooh, wait a minute. That's where I argue. Totally opposite of what people expect. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Try this. Try this sometime. I know none of you argue ever, but next time you're approaching an argument, you know, when you get that little feeling in you, like, I got to make sure that everybody knows I'm right. Okay. Next time, when, when it comes your turn to speak, say this or, or write this. You know, I see your point. May the Lord bless you. Just, just, just try it. It's totally unexpected. And I'll tell you something. It will diffuse every angry situation immediately. You break the tension in the entire exchange. You become a peacemaker instead of becoming somebody who adds fuel to the fire. Now, it works in our daily communication. I mean, it certainly will work at home, wouldn't it? Try beginning every conversation with a blessing. Our brother, Andre, does that. I've never spoken to this man without him saying, the Lord bless you. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I'm blessed. (laughs) You know, and so whatever he has to say after that comes under the umbrella of that blessing. And it has an impact on me. I'm sure if you've talked to him, it has the same impact on you. The communication in this letter, this first encouragement is right there on the surface, but it comes, it comes with a challenge as well. That's our second encouragement starting in verse five. And now I ask you, dear lady, now he's getting down to business. Not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Oh, here we go again with the love. Isn't isn't he overemphasizing this? I mean, the whole first letter was love, 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 love. We got it. Matter of fact, if you say it one more time, I'm going to get angry at you. See what I'm doing here? <laughs> yeah. and, and we need to remember that it's not whoever wrote this letter, John, I think it was John. Whoever wrote this letter is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So somewhere along the way, God must think that we need to hear this. Maybe we can correct him on that. Maybe we can't. So after opening with this blessing, the writer issues this challenge. He wants his readers to work at exhibiting their love for each other. Now, again, this is familiar. It's in all three letters, repeatedly mentioned. And we all know the reason it's repeatedly mentioned because it can be so hard to do. It's difficult. But it should get easier as we learn more and more about God and as we understand more and more about his character and nature and as we begin to embrace what we're being molded and shaped into, what we're called to do. 
And John continues here with verse six, and this is love. It's not just a commandment. This is what that is, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So what he's saying is God doesn't want us to think about loving each other. He doesn't want us to consider loving each other. He doesn't want us to exercise our free will and have feelings for each other. He commands us. And he's been doing it all along. And this second encouragement, this challenge, is to obey that commandment, to walk in love, to consciously work at being a loving person. Not because we have feelings for them, not because they have anything to offer us, only because God says that we should do that. And he intends this for our good and his glory. He's not trying to punish us for being unloving. He's trying to mold us and shape us into the likeness of his image. But there's another reason for this as well. I had to tell you something. When I first became pastor at WBF, which was, I think, only three or four years ago, it feels that way, doesn't it? We had a lot of folks that were uncomfortable. Things were changing. Previous pastor was beloved. I was different. And there were people that were uncomfortable. There were a few, there were a few that were really upset with me. I wasn't quite sure what to do with this. I'd just come from a, uh, a career in the retail area. And when somebody was upset with me, I would just fire them. <laughs> so, so I went to somebody with a lot more experience than I did and said, I don't know what to do about this. And he said, he said two words that just changed my life. He said, love them. And, of course, my first reaction was, well, that's life-changing. I thought, well, that's stupid. <laughs> I said, how am I going to do that? I don't even like them. And he said, well, I'm not asking you to like them. He said, you've got to work at it. It's not going to come naturally. Why don't you take one or two of them and invite them for a cup of coffee? And you know how much I love to have coffee. And I thought, well, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my life. But I thought, well, you know, he's got more experience than I do. Maybe I ought to give this a try. So I started taking the ones that were most upset out to coffee. And I got to tell you something, that was hard at first. But it kept on getting easier. And I I had a weight lifted from me. And I got to tell you something, it, it didn't get the results that I thought it would get. But I had this weight lifted from me. And I realized loving ain't easy. Loving ain't easy. I mean, do we know that? I mean, those of us that have been together for a long time, loving is not always easy. And and so we acknowledge that, amen? But let's not confuse love with affirmation. Now, let's go. This takes us to our third encouragement. There's a caution in here, verse 7. For many deceivers. Now, now John's had this this love, and, you know, he's, he's got the caution against the false teachers, But if we look at the rest of Scripture, we're not here to demonize the false teachers. We're not here to condemn them. We're we're called to love them. But he's saying, okay, you love them, but beware, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. 
Such a one is a deceiver in the Antichrist. Now he's talking about these teachers that were teaching that Jesus Christ was just a spirit. That he never came in the flesh. That he was always God. So the whole idea of fully man and fully God was just not present in their teaching. And what, what the writer is saying here is love will dis- distinguish the believer in Christ from the rest of the world. It's our mark. It's, it's, it's our display of God in our lives. In particular from the false teachers. The self-sacrificing love that God commands will not only garner God's blessing, but it will expose. It will bring to light the hearts and motives of those who rebel against him. Those who distort his truth. Those who are in the ministry for themselves and what they can get out of it. And oddly enough, ironically enough, what they're teaching is it's all about you when it's really all about them. Wow. So the outwardly focused love of believers is going to be a stark contrast to the self-centered, self-serving type of love that the false teachers are beginning to, to proclaim. And still, while we're called to love, we're urged not to be naive, not to be gullible. We are to be wise. We are to be discerning. The writer tells us in verse 8, he says, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. Now, for the word for watch here implies caution. He says, beware, be on the watch. He's talking about the false and misleading teaching that's flying all over the place. And he wants his readers to beware that they don't embrace that teaching. Even as they're trying to love like Christ loved, that they don't embrace that teaching. So that, he says, you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Reward? Oh, boy. I want some rewards. The writer says he doesn't want them to lose what they've worked for. Now, the first thing we ought to ask before we get to the rewards is, who is going to lose what they worked for? The author or the readers? It's not really clear, but I'm convinced he's talking about himself and his disciples, all everything that they've taught, referring to the teaching that he and his crew have given to the readers, but it really is kind of both groups. In other words, he's saying, don't abandon all we taught you. We worked hard to teach it to you, and you worked doubly hard to embrace it, to walk in it. Don't turn your back on it now. So what is this teaching that they've taught? Well, we see it in John, 1 John 5. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is a true God and eternal life. Uh, Just to boil that down, what he taught was eternal life was available in Jesus Christ. That's what they taught. But it's not just in Jesus Christ. It's in everything that the scriptures teach about him. So the writer says, hold on to this truth. Earn your full reward. I like the idea of rewards, But if I'm honest with you, my first thought about rewards is that they're about me. (laughs) They're about getting something for something I've done. So what rewards are we talking about? Well, we can talk about heavenly rewards. There are crowns in heaven. I don't know what they are, but 
you know, in heaven, if we take a look at Revelation, the crowns are there as an opportunity to worship God. They're not for us to parade around and go, look, I got a crown. And the writer doesn't want his readers to walk in darkness. And I think it's more likely what he's been talking about here is the abundant life that he talked about in his first letter. A lifestyle of peace, a lifestyle of joy, an abundance of God's blessings. We saw that in the gospel in John. So he says, don't walk around in this darkness like the false teachers do. And then want them to miss out on the fullness of a relationship with their father in heaven. Their obedience and their diligence will be rewarded with a holier, more joy-filled life. So the caution is not to allow their teaching to pervert the truth, their view of God, and, and replace it with another view that places themselves above God. Those teachers just aren't teaching Christ. Certainly aren't teaching that Christ came in the flesh. Certainly aren't teaching that he was crucified for our sins, dead and buried. But what they're teaching, what they're teaching sounds so good, so attractive, that the author of this letter needs to remind them, verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Those people don't have God. They've changed the teaching. They've changed the focus. In order to have a relationship with them. Matter of fact, he says, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Whoever abides in the true teaching has the Father and the Son. Those who believe in the one true God also believe in Christ and everything that he taught. Now, this is incredibly vital. I mean, it's not just a theological point. This is vital to our understanding of the truth. There is no, well, you know, we're all worshiping the same God, aren't we? I mean, what makes us more sincere or more worthy of heaven than those people over there that are worshiping in a different faith? It's all the same God. We're all going to end up in the same place. No. No. Either we believe the truth that God says about himself or we don't. And it doesn't matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter if you really, 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 really believe in it, that, that, that we're all going to have our own planet someday, like some religions teach. What matters is whether or not you believe in what God says about himself. If you understand who God really is, if you believe what he says about himself in his inspired word, then you will believe that his only son came and died and salvation is available through him alone. Well, who says that? God does. God says that in his inspired word. They're not claims that I'm making up or some commentator's making up. They're what God says about himself. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. It originates in him. It comes pouring out of him, authored and finished by him. And what does it say about him? So the first thing we see is all scripture is inspired. The second thing we see, John 1.14, Jesus says, and the word became flesh. That's him. 
Jesus became flesh. The word of God became flesh. And then in John 14, he says this, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would know my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Did you hear everything that's wrapped up in that? If you've looked upon me, you've seen the Father. Trinitarian doctrine right there. It made everybody mad. But Jesus says he took on human form and he's the only way to the Father. And with that understanding, our writer of 2 John says in verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, literally, if anyone teaches you anything different, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Wow. There's some context here you need to know. It needs to be taken into context of first century Palestine. Hospitality back then was a whole different practice than what we have right now. It was highly revered. It was not only revered, it was expected, it was demanded. And to violate it, to be inhospitable to a visitor or a traveler was a shameful act. It would bring shame down on the house, on the family, on the village, and ultimately upon their God. So it had to be avoided at all costs. It was actually preferable to suffer personally than to be inhospitable. Keep that in mind when you read about Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his family. We don't get this. We, we think some of the things we see uh, in, in which somebody in the Bible has honored their word or honored their vow or decided to be hospitable at the sacrificing their family, we go, how can you possibly do that? But that it was a fact of life back then. They would be saying to us, how can you possibly not do that? So it was particularly prominent in the early church where itinerant preachers like Paul and John would stay with someone maybe for months while they were teaching. So our letter tells folks not to bring these false teachers to your house. Not to have them stay with you and not to give them any greeting. Now, what is that? It's another practice that we have a hard time understanding in the context of the first century. It wasn't just a kind hello. It wasn't shaking hands and saying, well, welcome to our town. It wasn't just a polite offer of a glass of water. The traditional Jewish greeting was peace be with you. And it was actually a prayer. It was actually a blessing. And along with that prayer and blessing went an endorsement, an affirmation of that individual and an agreement with everything that individual stood for. There's an ancient set of writings called the Didache, 3rd and 4th century. Uh, that advises these early Christians to exercise wisdom, discernment towards false prophets and their teachers and what they bring, and to prohibit them from staying in your house, it says. Some of the writings found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that predate the first century reveal that whoever provided for an apostate, whoever provided for a false teacher, 
was themselves deemed an apostate sympathizer and would be expelled from the community along with the false teacher. Now, with this understanding of what hospitality and greeting meant to those living in the first century, our, our author says, forever greets him takes part in his wicked works. The message is this. Don't make them part of your life. Don't incorporate this. Don't endorse them. Don't appropriate their teachings. Don't support them. Don't affirm them in their beliefs and their practices. Notice that there's nothing in here that says you should argue with them. There's nothing in here that says you should fight with them or condemn them or judge them. The caution is to avoid appropriating their teaching and helping them teach it. In verse 12, he winds up with, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink or social media. Probably didn't even have a Facebook account. Indeed, instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that a joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. So we've seen, we've seen these three encouragements. We saw this commendation. Author starts out with an encouragement. I love that. But it's a divine commendation because it comes from God, from God himself, telling us to focus on what he's given us, focus on our blessings, and keep our eyes on his truth. This is really important as the world becomes more and more hostile to the church. I mean, every day it gets worse. We are encouraged more and more to distrust authority, to distrust our leaders, to distrust our teaching, to distrust the scriptures. Point fingers. We're encouraged to do that even as fingers are pointed at us. God's children are to look at his truth Strive to be thankful for what he's given us rather than lament over what he hasn't given us. Then we see this challenge. It's John's letter going back to the original theme in 1 John. What's love got to do with it? Well, you know, what we're finding out, love has everything to do with it. Why? Because God is love. We saw that in 1 John. We saw it in chapter 4. We saw it again in early in chapter 4, late in chapter 4. More importantly, we saw it in his only son going to the cross because of God's great love for his children. And we, brothers and sisters, are being molded and shaped into the likeness of his image. We are being conformed to his nature, and that is love. And our love is unconditional, just like God's love for us is. When I began spending time with those folks who were upset with me, I was absolutely convinced that if I bought them enough coffee, they would come around to thinking what a great guy I was. It never worked. It never worked. I didn't change anybody's mind. I had a weight lifted from my shoulders. But I got to tell you something. It did cause me at, at, at several points to say, well, why am I doing this? If I'm not getting anything out of it, why am I doing it? 22 years later, I want to be able to say I do it for God. I don't know that I do that all the time. I'm not perfect at it. 
But if we're expecting to get something for the love we give, we don't understand the nature of godly love. So then we saw this caution. Don't bring, don't bring bad teaching into your home. Whether or not it's your actual place where you live or your church. It's not just, listen carefully. This is not just a matter of doctrine. We need to think about this because we, we can make this an academic exercise, not just some exercise for the elders and the theologians to figure out. It, this has impact on each one of us every minute of every day. Bad teaching undermines the scriptures. It leaves the interpretation of scriptures up for grabs. It causes doubt in them. And obedience becomes optional. Some kind, it either becomes optional or it becomes some kind of perverted legalism. Oh, you got to do this and you got to do that. And if you're not doing these things over here, I don't think you're saved. While the other side is going, well, none of that matters anyway because God loves everybody. So we need to understand how this impacts our daily lives. When the word of God takes a back seat to how we live, when the focus on God and the centrality of Christ begins to fade and someone else or some other behavior or worse yet, ourselves takes the forefront, moves to the front burner in our lives, we begin to have problems. You know, up until... Most of that will work out pretty good on the average day. Most of it will cause you to feel better on the average day. But when the wheels fall off, when a, when a spouse gets critically ill, when a child has problems, when someone betrays us, when we lose our homes, when someone hurts us, when we lose our job, any number of things, all of a sudden, the people who taught us all that stuff, all that errant teaching, and all the things that we held on to so desperately, every time somebody took some little snippet of Scripture out of context, all of it, none of it is enough to get us through that hard hour. We have no anchor. We have no hope. We have no assurance. We have to find our way by ourselves because that's what we've been taught. Those people who know their Bible, those people who have embraced good, sound teaching, who've learned to trust the scriptures for what they say, even the hard parts, well, those folks, those folks have a way through. They know that their earthly woes, they have the assurance that their earthly troubles are temporary. That there is a God who will one day wipe away every tear even as his only son stands next to him inviting us into his presence. And that son understands everything. He understands our suffering, our pain, and our loss. He has firsthand knowledge of what we're going through. And brings us into the presence of the Father. Just because we've confessed our sins and believe him. He brings us into the presence of the Father forever. Don't let stink bugs into your house. They're hard to get rid of. 
Watch what you bring into your home. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you protect us. We give you thanks, Lord, that you preserve us. We give you thanks, Father, that you are our strength, even as you are our rest, even as you are our only affirmation. Father, we give you thanks that your spirit dwells within us and has promised to take us through all of the mud and all of the mire and all of the storms and all of the calm and deliver us into your presence. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Next week we'll be in... Uh, actually, we have some very important things happening next week. Uh, so I think we're going to be in Third John. Uh, but we will be inducting new members next week. Um, we'll be making an official announcement of our candidates for elders and how we will go forward in affirming them. Uh, so be here. Amen. Thanks for joining us online. God bless you. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on sermon audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at wbfva.org. Just click on giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.